Today's reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 35 through 59. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. The word of the Lord. Well, folks, uh, in a month, I think officially in a month, we will be uh, two years into this thing. And I read something on Twitter a few weeks ago that, that made me laugh, and it said, let's make year three of the pandemic the best one yet. And uh, I have to admit that I have a soft spot for that kind of dark humor. And uh, as I was studying this week, I, I thought back in our passage, and, and I hope the reason becomes clear soon, uh, about those early days of the pandemic, uh, Rudy Gobert and Tom Hanks Day, if you remember that. Uh, and then how quickly just everything cascaded. You know, everything was shutting down. Schools, restaurants, sporting events. Uh, uh, there was panic buying that was taking place. Uh, the good old days of washing your groceries and quarantining your mail. Uh, you know, but those were all of the bad parts that we went through together. 
But do you remember that there was maybe the more positive aspects, the, the collective cultural experiences in which we engage? I think there was, the primary one was watching The Tiger King on, on Netflix. That seemed to be something that, that brought us all together at that moment. And there was one other one. It was everywhere. People started to bake, to bake bread. It was a renaissance in the art of baking bread. Everyone had, a, you know, their, their, their sourdough starter and their tips for baking. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, there's, there's kind of the Jerry Springer effect of, of, of the Tiger King, right? It's easy to focus on someone else with, with their problems and go, wow, thank, you know, this is a, thank goodness I'm not like them. But why was it that when everything around us was, was changing and coming crashing down and screeching to a halt, that there was a basic human instinct to bake bread? I remember trying to find yeast. It was impossible for months. Flour was difficult to come by. And so our passage this morning is about bread. And this is what's known as the, the first of Jesus' predicate I am statements. So there's other instances in the Gospel of John where he makes absolute I am statements. You know, before Abraham was, I am. And, you know, walks on the water and the disciples are afraid, fear not, I am. There are these absolute I am statements. But then there's the I am statements that go with a noun. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life, etc., etc. And so these I am statements, they're unique to John's gospel, and uh, they're essential statements from Jesus about understanding who he is and, 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 and how we can relate to him. So I am the bread of life. That's the absolute first one that Jesus states. And, and so what is it about bread that Jesus would compare himself to it? As I was reading this past week in, in, in preparation for preaching, I discovered a book that was originally published in 1944, written by H.E. Jacobs. And it's entitled, 6,000 Years of Bread, subtitle, It's Holy and Unholy History. And Jacobs and this book is remarkable. You know, he and this work, he survived uh, the Holocaust in order to publish this work. And the central thesis of this book is that the history of, of bread is really the history of human civilization itself. And here's how he ends his opening chapter. He says, Bread reigned over the ancient world. No food before or after exerted such mastery over men. The Egyptians who invented it based their entire administrative system upon it. The Jews made bread the starting point of their religious and social laws. The Greeks created profound and solemn legends for their bread church of Eleusis. And the Romans converted bread into a political factor. They ruled by it, conquered the entire world by it, and lost the world through it again. At the last, the day came when Jesus Christ made consummate all the spiritual significance that had become attached to it, saying, Eat, I am the bread. Flour, water, yeast, salt, sugar. These five simple ingredients combined together changed the world. And while many cultures had the ability to make what were essentially flour pancakes, it was the Egyptians who invented bread, baking bread in an oven. And it was in Egypt that the people of God learn to bake. And I digress until later on that point. 
But Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Which raises three things I want to explore this morning. First, what is bread? Why would Jesus compare himself to that? And then what is life? And lastly, how do we get this bread and this life that Jesus promises? So first, what is bread? Now, of course, we've all seen a loaf of bread, so we know the literal answer to that question. It's the combination of the aforementioned ingredients into a dough that's then baked in an oven with a hard outer crust and a soft, tender, moist inside. Jesus is not saying he is bread in that way. But we know that bread isn't just bread. Bread means something. Actually, bread means a lot of things. It has this rich uh, symbolic uh, significance and, and practical significance as well. There's a reason, I don't know if this is true anymore, but, but wasn't it that realtors, would, would they bake cookies or they would even you know, bake a fresh loaf of bread? Because when you come into the house, there's something about that aroma that's just alluring and enticing. No. I think that's suggestive too about, about there's something about Christ when we learn about him. That, that draws us in, that, that makes us want to know more, that makes us curious, that perhaps whets our appetite. But bread, you know, even more than, than kind of smelling good and drawing us in, first and foremost, it's a staple. I think they've changed it up since then, you know. Our, uh, but if you remember back in school, if you went to school, probably up through the 90s, I don't know, I'm sure they've changed it in, in the new millennium, but do you remember, speaking of Egypt, the food pyramid, Right? We learned that's what healthy nutrition is all about. It's all about the food pyramid. And the base of the food pyramid was what? Bread, grains, cereals. Now, I'm sure it's like a smaller part now. But it was basically saying, eat lots of bread. That is the foundation of a healthy diet. And I don't just think it was because they were in the thrall of, you know, big wheat uh, that they put that at, at, at the bottom. But there was this sense that, that they were reflecting kind of the received cultural wisdom that bread is a staple of our diet. Has been for centuries. And so, you know, what did Jesus even teach his disciples to pray for, for themselves, before even praying for their own forgiveness? Give us this day our daily bread. So bread's a, a staple for existence, for survival. In, in many ways, you know, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Well, in many ways, uh, for human beings, bread is life. And saying that he's the bread of life, Jesus is saying that a, a relationship with him is just as basic, just as necessary, satisfying in us a hunger that try as we might with other things, nothing else can so bread is basic, but that's the second thing about it, too, is that it's filling. It satisfies. You know, you go to the Olive Garden, you, you can just fill up on the free breadsticks, right? Don't even, don't even unlimited, don't even need to pay for them. Uh, and I, I know that, you know, I love sandwiches for lunch. And I know that when I eat a sandwich, I am, like, full for many more hours than if I eat anything else. And so Jesus is saying, in effect, that, that he alone can truly fill us. 
And actually, just before uh, this passage, uh, it's the one miracle story that's in, in all of the Gospels, and it's when Jesus feeds the 5,000. And, and when he feeds them, there's such an abundance of bread left over that, that the people say, sir, give, like, we want, and he, Jesus starts talking about himself and bread, and the bread come down from heaven. They go, well, yeah, like, we want this source of bread so that we, we, we never have to, you know, work for it again. And, and so Jesus is saying, this is a bread that can fill us to abundance. There's a, a deep hunger in the human soul that only Jesus can satisfy. And Lord knows how much we hunger and, and how much we try to, to sate that hunger with other things. Right? We hunger for love and acceptance. We hunger for affirmation. We, we hunger for significance. We hunger for justice and righteousness. We hunger for security. We, we hunger for novelty and, and stimulation. We, we hunger for meaning. We, we hunger to be a part of something greater than ourselves. And we try to fill that hunger with so many things. We try to fill it with accomplishments and education or, or with work or with relationships and the approval of others. And when that doesn't work, you know, sometimes we, we try to fill that with drugs or alcohol or, or, or with politics and entertainment, which are increasingly indistinguishable from each other, with, with moral crusadings showing the world how right and righteous we are. And yes, sometimes we even try to fill that hunger with food itself. But we know from experience, that none of those things can ultimately fill us. None of those things can ultimately satisfy that deep, deep hunger inside of us. Jesus says that even your ancestors, even our ancestors who ate manna in the wilderness, they too died. And the reason that those other things that they can't satisfy us, they can't, they can't fill our deepest needs, our deepest longings, is that the ways that they fill us are, are, are only temporary, even the best of them. Every relationship comes to an end. So does every job, every hobby. Every high eventually comes crashing down. Every cause eventually becomes passe. Every novelty just eventually another source of boredom. Only Jesus, because he is the great I am, because he is the incarnate and eternal and immortal word of God, can fill us so that we will never hunger, because he will never spoil, never grow old, and will never ever be taken away. So bread is a staple. Bread is filling. But bread is also fuel for life. The saying is true that, 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 that we eat so we can live. We don't live so that we can eat. And our body converts bread into energy, the energy we need to live life and live life to its fullest. And so Jesus is saying, in effect, that, that a relationship with him is what can fuel the type of life that he's talking about, which we'll get to later. What does he mean by life? But this relationship with him is going to be the fuel that we need for living, you know, the kind of eternal life that he talks about. It, it's what gives us the energy to live lives marked by love, even love of our enemies, lives of self-sacrifice, of service, of, of generosity, of forgiveness, of kindness, of bravery, of hope. None of that comes fully naturally to any of us. All of that requires a spiritual life, an inner life that is fueled by Christ himself in us. 
which is another thing about bread. In order to accrue its benefits to us, it needs to actually be ingested. And when we eat bread, in some strange way, it becomes part of us. And that's actually one of the major themes of the Gospel of John, that that our relationship with Christ is so close that he is in some way inside of us or part of us. And and John's favorite term for this, he talks about it, he'll go on to talk about it later, but it even occurs in this passage, is abiding. Christ abiding in us. St. Paul talks about, you know, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that's what Jesus' bread of life teaching leads us to. An idea that when we trust in him, our our lives become so intertwined or enmeshed with his that it is as if we have ingested him. And if that sounds strange or disturbing, we're in good company. It did to Jesus' original audience as well. So those are are some thoughts of mine, just some reflections about what bread is and, and what it might mean by Jesus saying when he says, I am the bread of life, and why he would use that analogy for himself about, about who he is and his own significance. But there's another point that Jesus is at pains to make again and again in this passage. And it's not just that he is the bread of life, but where that bread comes from. Because the common refrain in this passage, the thing actually, the idea, the theme that occurs over and over again, even more than, than Jesus being the bread of life, which he repeats multiple times in this passage, is that this bread has come down from heaven. And in fact, that's the first thing that, that, that troubles the, the, the Jewish leaders who hear this, is they're saying, how can he say that he's come down from heaven? Why does Jesus stress that point? What's so troubling about it? And I think it's this, that the gospel itself, the good news itself can be captured by contrasting two different origins of bread. There's the bread that comes down from heaven. Well, then there's also the bread that comes up from the earth itself. And the first mention of bread in the Bible comes right there in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve have eaten the forbidden fruit, God is explaining to them the consequences of their fall from grace. And he says this, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. So that... Bread that comes from from human toil of the earth is not a reminder of the blessedness of creation, but actually living under sin's curse. It's a reminder that we live in a fallen and broken world. But bread from heaven? That's another matter entirely. And Jesus invokes in his teaching here the story from Exodus chapter 16 of the manna in the wilderness. And this happens after God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. They've passed through the Red Sea and they find themselves in the wilderness longing for, in the uh, inimitable words of the King James Version, the flesh pots of Egypt. They say, why did you bring us out here into the desert to die? And so they're grumbling. And again, we see that language of grumbling in our passage. And so they're complaining. And so the Lord's response is to provide them with bread from heaven that they will collect each day, along with, of course, quail in the evening. So whereas bread from from the earth, it's it's a reminder of the curse of sin. Bread from heaven is a reminder of God's salvation and his liberation. Bread from the earth, it required back-breaking toil to produce. 
It was subject to, you know, all of the varieties of, of, of human existence, you know, uh, climate and uh, invading armies and, and, and locusts and, and pestilence and, and weeds bred from the earth. You had to struggle and fight to get it. It was a reminder of the frailty and precariousness of life and human condition, but bread from heaven was a gift of sheer grace. No work necessary to get it. All one had to do was receive it. So bread from the earth reminds us of our fallen condition. The bread from heaven is a reminder that we are saved by God's grace. That's the gospel of bread. But Jesus doesn't say that he's merely bread or bread come down from heaven. He said he is the bread of life. In Greek, there's you know, at least a couple of words that get used for life, get translated as life. One of them is bios. Sounds familiar. That's where we get the word biology from. That is the state of being alive, which is actually an, you know, an interesting question when you go, what constitutes something as living? That's an interesting philosophical question that we're not going to get into this morning. But the other word is zoe. It's where we get the name Zoe. That's a great name. That's a, a popular name. I don't know if you know any Zoes, but it's a name that means life. Zoe Deschanel. Great. And, and, and theologically speaking, that word has to not do just, you know, with the status of being in existence and being alive, but it, it, not the quantity of life, right, but, but the quality. Zoe life is, is life that's really alive, especially when it's paired with, with this word that gets translated as eternal life. It's the life of the age. It's a quality of life, of being in, in relationship to God, of living in the sphere or the domain where God is in control and everything is as it should be. Because the eternal life that Jesus is talking about is not eternal existence. Eternal existence could just as easily be hell as it could be heaven. If you've ever read or seen the, you know, the play by the, the famous French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre, No Exit, you know, one of the punchlines of that play is uh, the kind of the famous summation of it is what hell is other people. But it's not just that. It's not just that hell is other people as sort of, you know, maybe uncomfortable as that statement might be from an existentialist, but it's hell is other people forever. No exit. And so the eternal life and the resurrection life that Jesus promises here for those who receive this bread of life that he offers is a life infused with the grace of God that starts now and continues to eternity. Kind of life that only gets better and better and better. Now we know it's not a linear trajectory. We want that to be true, right? We come to know God, we trust in him, and everything's always going to be, you know, up and to the right on the life trajectory. There's ups and there's downs this side of glory. There's starts and there's stops. There's steps forward, there's steps back. But, but we know this, that, that when we <laughs> trust in Jesus, we know in the end ultimately which direction things are going. One of our, our family sayings, our most sardonic, is, you know, remember, things can always get worse. You know, we say that just, you know, part of our dark humor. But ultimately, that's not what we most fully believe. With ultimately, ultimately with God, things will get better. And so that is good news. That no matter what we're facing, our situation isn't hopeless. We aren't hopeless. No one or no thing is a lost cause. I think that truth 
It gives us the hope to, to keep on living and striving and praying because Jesus has promised us this life. All right, so that's bread, that's life, and that's all well and good. But Jesus is saying, well, you know, unless you partake of this, you won't have it. And so how do we get this bread? We can't bake it. We can't make it ourselves. I made some delicious French bread yesterday. It was wonderful in my bread machine. It's not the bread of life. You can't buy it in the store. And so this leads to, at the end of our passage, the last six, seven verses of it, which were Jesus' most unpopular teaching by far. Jesus says this, and John tells us just a few weeks later, basically everyone abandons Jesus after he says this. And Jesus asks his disciples, well, are you guys going to leave too? I mean, this is highly unpopular. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Jesus says over and over again stuff that sounds a lot like cannibalism. Almost a universal human taboo. In fact, one of the interesting things we learned from um, an early Christian defender, someone who in, in the second century, middle of the second century, was trying to uh, defend uh, Christians against persecution, one of the main charges that were leveled against the earliest Christians were that they celebrated what were known as Thaistian feasts, referring to the myth of Thaistes, who um, his brother wanted to get revenge on him, and so his brother murdered his children and then held a banquet and fed, unbeknownst to Thaistes, fed his children to him as a meal. It's just awful mythology. You can see why this would make a you know, great Greek tragedy, kind of like the Oedipus is always the person doing something horrible and taboo that they don't know that they're doing, and it's kind of their fate, the cruel fate of the gods visiting them. And so Christians were accused of celebrating Thaistian feasts, Thaistian banquets, because they misunderstood, the, 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 the powers that be in the empire misunderstood these words of Jesus. They took them literally. Now for us, we see what Jesus is talking about here is clearly the Lord's Supper, a.k.a. Holy Communion, a.k.a. the Eucharist. And a fascinating point to consider is that the Gospel of John is unique in that it has no last supper. No Last Supper in John. Actually, in John, there's no uh, baptism of Jesus. We learn that Jesus is baptized, but he doesn't narrate it. And, and, and this has led to the, uh, some to accuse John of being anti-sacramental, but I, I think that could not be further from the truth. So instead of a Last Supper, we get this passage in anticipation of it, which is filled with Last Supper language about his body and his blood being given for salvation and, and being partaken of by the faithful. And I want to say this, you know, there's so much that we could say about what's happening here at the Lord's table. But, but the, the theory behind the elements isn't what matters, you know. Roman Catholics say they're transubstantiated, so uh, the accidents uh, remain the same, the outward appearance, but the substance is transformed. We don't need to go there. The Lutherans say it's consubstantiated, you know, Christ is present in, with, and under. Or, you know, uh, debating whether Christ is really present or if he's really spiritually present or if this is just a mere memorial. We don't need to get into that today. We can say this, that when we come to the table, it's an act of faith. 
It's a confession of faith, really. Confessing our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That He's here. That however it works, He's he's feeding us with the food of eternal life. That His body was broken for us. That His blood was shed for us. And one wonderful wonderful thing about celebrating uh, the Lord's Supper each and every week is this. That no matter how bad or good the sermon is, we at least get to hear the gospel each and every week. Our Lord's body given for us, His blood shed for us. Do this in remembrance of me, and when we partake of it, we declare this death on our behalf, on your behalf, for the sake of the world, until He comes again. See, feeding week after week on the bread of life is not just about our one-time conversion. John is very much about conversion. We, we studied John chapter 3, being born again with Nicodemus. That, that, that matters. That's kind of the John's baptism passage without talking about it. But it's not just about our conversion. It's about our ongoing communion with him. And so that weekly of rhythm of gathering and eating so we can feast upon the word and sacrament, weekly being reminded of who God is and who we are and how then we shall live in light of that, that everything we're reminded every week, everything is, is sheer grace, which calls for us from us a life of gratitude. And so soon we will hear those words again. Take this bread, drink this cup, and declare the Lord's death on your behalf until he comes again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this teaching this morning, for this bread of life which you give us, which satisfies the deepest hunger inside of us. And so, Lord, if there are other ways we have been trying to fill our life with meaning and significance and purpose, we repent of those ways, we reject them, and we acknowledge this morning that you alone can fill us. And God, this morning, might we hear your words of institution as an invitation to us to cast all of those other things aside and to place our hearts and our hopes solely, solely, solely in you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.